Hello, everyone. I'm Alicia Swamy. I'm here with my co-host, Keely Severson and Eric Johnson, and we are Exposing Mold. So in our last conversation, we covered the cycle of gaslighting and how doctors are gaslighting patients and patients are gaslighting each other. Well, we also want to cover another form of gaslighting that is occurring, and that is sad. And no, we're not talking about sudden adult death syndrome. We will definitely have a conversation on that, but that will be saved for another day. We are talking about seasonal affective disorder. Now, when it's wintertime, when it gets doomy and gloomy out there, you start to see news articles and media pitches of how everyone is sick because there isn't any sunlight how you're depressed and anxious because it's snowing and it's raining. Well, we actually think something else is going on. And so one of our key indicators when we are working with mold patients, and it's a question that we ask everyone, is your health affected by the weather? When snowstorm hits or when the rain's coming, do you feel symptoms in your body? Are you feeling pain? Are you feeling anxiety? And this is usually due to something else that we believe is happening. Now, Eric, I'd love for you to talk more about this. Well, during the um, Lake Tahoe mystery illness, I suffered from seasonal affective disorder. I had a lot of depression and a downturn during the winter months, and I grew to dread the, the holidays more so than other people. I mean, the holiday blues are are well known as a phenomenon, but it was feeling like this time of year was trying to kill me. So I proposed to Drs. Cheney and Peterson that if we could find out what was going on in the winter months, what was increasing and control it, that at least I could feel at least as well during the winter as I did during the summer when I typically felt better. And I found that the common explanation for the seasonal downturn was lack of sunlight, loss of vitamin D. Yet nobody was really altering their patterns. Like a lot of sick people, they were staying indoors all summer long. So it's not like they were out getting sunlight, but they would still get worse in winter anyway. This just didn't make sense to me. And I came up with a pretty grim name for it because it seemed like every winter I wanted to commit suicide. So I called it suicide season. But that's a really bad name. I found out that Dr. David Bell, in his Faces of CFS, Chronic Fatigue Syndrome, his book, he wrote about this, that every November, his chronic fatigue syndrome patients would come back with a relapse. They would always get worse. The numbers would just go through the roof. And even though it might start earlier, say October, that it seemed to hit its peak about November, but these people would remain sick all the way through the holidays and into early spring. So he came up with a much better name, the November factor. So I liked his name much better than mine. So I started calling it November factor. But what is it? What increases in the winter months? Well, at Lake Tahoe, we've got a desert nearby and it's pretty barren. You can go out to sand dunes where there's nothing really out there but sand, not even any water to speak of. So if I was looking for a pristine environment to find out what lack of chemicals, lack of mold, lack of anything, lack of human presence could do, the desert would be the place to go. So that's what I did. And sure enough, the weather could do anything it wanted. And I felt nothing, no change. So it seemed to me that rather than 
being an effect on the body, the individual, the lack of sunlight, it was something that the winter was doing to the environment. Something was unleashing. So we, it seems logical that it's colder, damper, wetter, and there's more opportunities for mold to get access to what it needs to grow. So it does, it picks up in the wintertime. So that seemed to make sense that I could control my symptoms, control my downturn by uh, spending more time out in the desert, getting more tolerance, just staying clear of mold. So it seemed like mold was a likely explanation. But then the weather change came into it. What happens when a storm is coming? Many people complain that they can sense an impending storm. And for many years, and a lot of people, they would blame rain. They would associate with rain. Storm and rain, well, that was the first thing they noticed. But if you pay careful attention, they would complain about the weather change before the rain ever started. Sometimes when a cold front was coming through, they would get that downturn with no rain at all, just the cold front. So what happens when a cold front comes through? Barometric pressure change. That became associated with the increased rheumatism, the aches and pains, the feeling sick down to your very core. And there's a lot of references to this in the literature. It it crops up in old movies and old books, but in people primarily with rheumatism, they've already got something going on and it's showing up in them more. Kind of a cliche that the old people their bones act up with the weather. So they're like weather forecasters. Well, since I was being affected in a similar way to what happened with the seasonal affective disorder, could it be that it was the exact same mechanism, an increase in mycotoxin, increase in some substance from mold that's being caused by a change, the barometric pressure change? This did seem to be the case because in the middle of a weather change, when I felt affected, I could take a run out to the desert and that effect would disappear. So I began telling groups that I believe that sensitivity to weather change is an ambient increase in mycotoxin exposure due to the barometric pressure lowering, causing more release from toxins from the spores and fragments and colonies. So that model has held up pretty well. And I believe that it is, it is accurate. It is testable, but so far it hasn't really been tested. And Eric, you don't really limit the change in the weather with this hypersensitivity phenomenon in your thinking to just cold and damp in the winter. It's really, you've thought about this and spoken about this with people having symptoms really with any change in the weather. That's one of the mark the marks for you. Yeah, I, um, weather change is usually accompanied by increase in wind. And I thought, I wonder if the Venturi effect, passing spores and fragments through a Venturi would have the same effect as lowering barometric air pressure. Because it's exactly the same thing, but in a Venturi, you're, you're creating it rather than the weather. So I started doing experiments with vacuum cleaners, with uh, fans, with HVAC systems, and observing for how my symptoms would correlate by passing spores and fragments through a venturi, through the system. And sure enough, it seemed to unleash more toxicity, more of the sensations that I could feel. So I believe that just the effect of the wind, it's identical to the lowering of barometric pressure, 
but on a very local scale. It's only going to affect that area. Uh, weather change, that's going to affect the broad area. All the colonies are going to have an increase in release of whatever it is that they're putting out. Whereas a fan is only, only going to affect that one little spot where the air was accelerating. Dr. Shoemaker actually put that in desperation medicine. I um, did these experiments with vacuum cleaners and found that it felt like it was unleashing more toxicity. And in desperation medicine, Dr. Shoemaker wrote that many of his Lyme patients, his uh, biotoxin illness patients, felt knocked out for a couple of days after a simple chore like vacuuming the living room rug. And I asked him, why did you put vacuuming specifically in your book? Is it because you aware of this concept of air movement causing a, a toxin release? And he told me, no, it's, it's just because so many people complained about it. Well, to my way of thinking, if so many people complain about it, about HVAC systems and vacuum cleaners causing a toxin release, there's a commonality to air movement, to weather change, to impending storms. It's something to look into. Chinese medicine addresses this, and I don't think I don't think it's addressed in full. We've discussed this quite a bit behind the scenes. It's like the symptoms of wind heat. Well, there's wind and there's heat, but it seems like there's this something else because what is the wind and the heat kind of bringing into the body? And in Chinese medicine, there's this idea, wind cold, wind heat, wind damp. And it's the idea of wind bringing in these pathogens where if it's wind heat, you might have a sore throat and fever. When we've discussed this, I've always gotten the sense of Chinese medicine is just missing something in the observation of what it is that the wind is actually doing to produce the heat or that health symptom presentation internally. And I feel like I've gotten like up close and personal looks at this really recently because we have little space heater fans in one of the kids' bedrooms. And when he sleeps, when he sleeps right in front of it, he gets really sick, which it looks like a mold crash. But in Chinese medicine, the symptoms match wind heat. But the interesting factor is that there's always this factor of something else. Because you know I can feel contamination in the house, and I know when the kids are reacting to something, and there's always a little bit of hint of that around in the air when these events happen with, with my kids. I think it's interesting that Chinese medicine kind of validated, like, something going on with the wind, but then there's this, there's this other aspect of, like, when um, different seasons in Chinese medicine are associated with a different organ. And if that organ has weakness or is out of balance somehow, you could have symptoms change in that organ with the seasonal change. And Alicia, this is something that you and I discussed, having, having health symptom changes specific to a seasonal change. And it's something that I talk to patients about. I want a lot of people confirm, but I just, I'm bringing it up because I'm wondering if, if the confirmation of having symptoms change seasonally is kind of like a, a clue that you're like on your way to being a hypersensitive or maybe already a hypersensitive and don't know it. Does it sound like there could be something to that? Well, the Greek physician Hippocrates wrote about the burning winds thousands of years ago, about a different wind direction created different <laughs> symptoms in people, and that the um, colder, wetter months were associated with greater mortality. 
So this is 2,000 years ago, and he actually attempted to correlate illness with specific wind directions. And I believe he got mm. so far as writing that the uh, greatest impact occurred when the wind was from the Aegean Sea. Oh, that's an interesting observation. Yeah, especially since the Aegean is um, notable for having algal blooms. So it seemed to me that the combination of uh, a warm, dry summer unleashing the cyanobacteria and algal bloom, and then being activated by a wind, which seems to somehow, through the sheer tribostatic friction of the air molecules, increase bioavailability, make something that is in still air turn horrific when the air is moving. So this observation of wind in association with illness goes back a long, long ways, but we can't seem to get past the point of making the observation to wondering what exactly is the mechanism here. Yeah, and then they leave it to the the psychologists and psychiatrists to say that it's anxiety, depression, lack of sun, you know, kind of what you mentioned earlier. It's just, I don't know, it's mind-boggling. When I have a problem to something, like I want to figure out what's going on. Like, why am I, why is this problem happening? And then I want to find a solution, right? Naturally, that's my human instinct. So it seems like we dropped the ball on these, these larger concepts. Maybe they're too difficult. I don't know. Maybe we, people have been trying to figure out and they're like, ah, I can't figure it out. Or they find something that's really scary and they don't want to sound the alarm. Um, I remember you telling us a story, Eric, about, um, there was some mycotoxin mold convention. I don't know when this was, maybe back in the day, maybe in the 90s. And they invited a researcher that was going to talk about stachybotrys. And then they rescinded his invitation. They didn't want him to present on it because as we think it could be because we don't want this information out there because someone can take it and you know create a bioweapon or whatever, weaponize the mold, the toxins. And so do you think that's why they don't want to find answers to these different things? Because number one, it's too scary. Uh, or number two, like it could be used as a, a biological weapon or something like, I don't know, you know, I'm just trying to come up with things here. Like, why is it that they don't want to find these mechanisms? Yes. And yes, um, it's too scary. It's too complicated. It's too hard to control. It would create too much economic damage to the insurance companies. It would throw the medical system into total chaos, call for the destruction of a great many schools and buildings that it's measurably toxic. People are tolerating it, but just barely. And the fact that this can be weaponized so easily. And it's already been done back before the insurance companies began writing all their exclusions for stachybotrys. Some enterprising people found that they could soak a building encourage the growth of toxic mold, find discernible levels, and then condemn the whole building and collect on the insurance. So they would deliberately create water leaks to set up a situation where the toxic mold measurements would be so outrageous that they were certain to collect on the insurance. And finally, when the insurance companies figured out what they were doing, they wrote all these exclusions, so it's no longer profitable to do that. But it goes to show that if somebody can use toxic mold in a bad way, they will. And they did. So it just seems like having this information out there, demonizing, stacking, putting it at the forefront would really cause so many problems. And maybe that's why they try to hide it. 
and say, oh, it's aspergillus, you know, aspergillus is the most dangerous mold or whatever, you know what I mean? Instead of really calling out what's really causing the issues and, and driving people into hypersensitivity is these trichothecine producing molds like stachyketomium, trichoderma, fusarium. Yeah, that's what it seems to be. They don't want people to attach too much importance to the toxic map black mold stachybotrys. So they can't remove all evidence of the damage that it does. But what they can do is minimize it by trying to make it blend in with all the other common molds. What I find so interesting with staying on topic of health and the weather, um, you know, I had that experience during summertime where I was in Tahoe and then the local wake, I think maybe had some cyano issues. And me as a mold hypersensitive, I was intolerant to that. And so I'm just wondering, like, what is it about mold that kicks off hypersensitivity in certain individuals? And then they become hypersensitive to so many other things like these cyanotoxins and other, on all this other stuff that people like to complain about, the, the chemicals, the um, whatever. It's a shame that the mold community didn't really meet up with the multiple chemical sensitivity groups. They sort of had their turf and they were like trying to protect their own interests by not interfacing with each other because the concept of spreading being primed by one chemical over one overwhelming chemical exposure and becoming ill and then gradually spreading. If you don't limit your exposure to your primary, the immune system gets jacked up and you start reacting to more and more and more things. And this is extremely well known in chemical sensitivity circles. And for some reason, they don't really apply it in mycotoxin circles when they should, because mycotoxins are chemical. Yeah, that's a really good explanation because it's just because that's where people get thrown off where they're like oh it's not just the mold and that's where they they adopt this toxic soup idea of well i'm reacting not just to mold but i'm literally literally outside next to a lake and i'm reacting like maybe it's not just the mold maybe it's something else you know and so it gets really confusing when um you become a hypersensitive individual and then you have all these secondary issues on top of the mold. I remember talking to people with chemical sensitivity back in the 1960s, a painter, in fact, who acquired solvent sensitivity by working with all the paint. And he was very well aware of what his primary trigger was and how this had made him sensitive to other chemicals. But he knew what his primary was and he paid less attention to the secondary ones because it was the solvents that would really tip him into high gear. So as long as he could minimize his exposure to paint solvents, he could kind of go on with his life for all the other things. And when I realized that toxic black mold was my primary, I simply applied that same principle. And for some reason, they don't consider this acceptable because they don't recognize that the toxins from stachybotrys constitute a primary exposure. Very interesting. We'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Home Cleanse, formerly known as All American Restoration, is a company that specializes in improving indoor air quality through proper mold remediation, offering services nationwide. You can visit them at homecleanse.com to learn more. The Mold Guy performs mold sampling and testing for homeowners, renters, and businesses. Please visit themoldguyinc.com to learn more. 
Black Diamond Services provides solutions to the unforeseen challenges that can affect homes and families with no out-of-pocket costs. Services include temporary housing relocation and mold test referrals for homeowners. Visit blackdiamondservices.com to learn more. Thank you again for your sponsorships. It is integral to our ability to serve our community and to improve the quality of life for all. What is it about the the season change, just that catalyst from season to season that makes people like sick? I mean, we have an explanation for winter, you know, an explanation of the, the lack of sunlight and all that, but you know, going from spring to summer, it's, it's, it's good weather still. So it's like, what, what is it? It's just that shift in energy that kind of stirs everything up. Yeah, I believe it is. I believe that the microbial colonies, they aren't as active during the summer. They can't be because they don't have as much moisture. They don't have as much growth to deal with. So they quietly sit there and produce their toxins without the stirring effect of weather change, of winds, of the barometric pressure unleashing these plumes. So they acquire a potential that is just waiting there, ready to be unleashed with the first storms of winter. And I've asked people about this, and I find that a lot of people would have a major relapse concurrent with the first really violent storms of the fall. Both my boys crashed with the first snowstorm here. And I was kind of looking out to see if it was going to happen because I remember you telling me that the the first storm is the worst and then the subsequent storms seem to be a little easier to deal with. So I've been kind of keeping an eye on that. And sure enough, we had two crashes with the first snowfall here. But I know there's a house that's getting amped up. Sorry for interrupting you. It's a horrible thing. But when you've got an, an explanation and that explanation seems to fit the facts, at least you've got something to go on. And it even opens up the possibility that if you're aware that you're in a bad location, one that's acting up when these storms start to hit, you can experimentally go to a different location and see if the effect decreases. I can see why people living in mold or contamination would maybe think that they're bipolar. Because I remember about two years ago, a place that I was staying temporarily a day and a half or one day prior to a, uh, not just a thunderstorm, but a lightning and thunderstorm. And I think the lightning is what I was feeling coming in specifically, but I would feel manic. I would talk faster. I mean, I would just, I, I don't have a history of manic behavior or mania, but during this one specific time frame of leaving mold, entering the intensification phase, and then being exposed with uh, an electrical storm coming in. I remember being acutely aware that I could feel lightning coming in, and that also that awareness of, I'm so manic, I wonder if this is what people who have bipolar disorder or are diagnosed with bipolar disorder experience, this extreme sensitivity to these weather changes that controls them like they're on puppet strings. Because it's like you you cannot turn off that um, intense feeling of just something nagging at you. I don't really know how to describe it. The other thing that we were talking about, Alicia, before was that me and you always had like a season that that our or our health symptoms would change seasonally, like with a season. For me, it was always from summer to fall. In Chinese medicine, it's it's 
that transition between summer and fall is the time where you're more sensitive to dampness, which is interesting because that's when I'd always get urinary tract infections. Yeah. When you, I thought that was interesting when you brought that up and I've seen, (laughs) I seen an explanation from another uh, mold person in our mold world that is sought to as an expert. His explanation is that it's parasite season parasites start hatching like a shit ton. I don't know how you have evidence of this, but that's his theory. So it's interesting that you brought that up, that Chinese medicine does have an explanation from, uh, from summer to fall, because I'm the same way. It's like, I'm best at summer. And then once fall hits, it's like slowed down downstream, you know? And like, yep. That first summer storm that, or that first winter storm really kicks my ass. I'm like bedridden. And I'm like, ah, and I always think of what we talked about with Eric, how Eric's like, you, I would be in the middle of the desert and the storm would happen and I would be fine. I'm like, I need to experiment this. Just go in the middle of the desert naked and see how I feel. <laughs> One thing that's interesting about Eric's description is how he specifies that when he was going to the desert just to get good air to do sabbatical healing, that he had no no symptom change with a weather change, which really points to this something else thing that we kind of mentioned when we're talking about the wind and the heat and the something else. You know, if these weather factors aren't just bothering you just by themselves, then what's the something else? If Eric's out in the desert with no contamination and and that's not there to get amped up for that to bother him, is, is that the something else? And it begs the question of, are these clues of our health changing with the season a hint that you're either hypersensitive or on your way to becoming hypersensitive or at the very least in a bad building where your health is changing seasonally? So that's evidence that you're in a bad building because it's what's that something else that's changing with the season based on the weather? And this is what you've always wanted research into, Eric. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, if you are affected by something and you discover things about it that allow you to predict and control it, why wouldn't you want to pursue it? It makes me think of the old grannies who are like, who can feel the weather changing on their knees. You know, they feel the rain coming. They feel the dampness in their knees. Yeah, I remember in the old movies, I used to actually see descriptions of that in like uh, the famous movie, The Thin Man, the uh, ancient professor, Maureen Sullivan's father, working in his laboratory. He just turns around and says, oh, must be a storm coming. I can feel it in my bones. I'm going, what is that? <laughs> yeah, I've heard that so much from people older than me that I always just thought like, oh, you can just feel rain coming at a certain age. <laughs> and then to find out that Hippocrates wanted to study that was correlating it not just to cold and damp months, but to certain wind directions. I mean, now there's a scientist. That's incredible. Is that the one who came up with the term fire wind? Yeah, the burning winds, huh? The fire winds. But I'm sure the Chinese probably came up with the same thing. Well, just that just that term is interesting to me because of when we've discussed, I remember one time specifically, we were talking about the range, you know, when you feel something that you're reacting to, how there's a specific range, how it can burn your face, and you asked, what does that behave like? And I said fire, because it feels like it can burn you. It has this range where the heat extends to or not. Um, so I, I, I just find the description fire wind interesting. 
because of that because I kind of think as the effect is like the fire like how far does the flame go out but he probably wasn't observing that he was probably observing signs of heat coming in with the wind he was going strictly by people's descriptions of how they felt during certain wind directions and I seem to recall that some people got so sick that um well they would literally rot their oh no their, their flesh would like decay on their bodies. And of course, that sounds unbelievable. So you kind of tend not to focus on descriptions like that. But if you know about Stevens-Johnson syndrome, an autoimmune response where a chemical exposure can make you attack your own skin and consider that an algal bloom can put out these level of powerful toxins, then it sounds perfectly reasonable that a burning wind off the Aegean could cause a Stevens-Johnson-like syndrome. How terrifying that would be. Do you think that that burning, like that, those skin sensations is kind of like a beginning stage of that illness? Yeah. Oh, Jesus. So like the mast cell activation, like burning and redness upon an exposure is probably a very initial, initial stage of your skin melting off. (laughs) Your skin self-decaying. Well, yeah. You know what? That actually makes sense because I remember... When Martin, that was always one of his biggest symptoms, redness on his face with an exposure. And when he was very sick, it actually was a rash that was kind of eating away his skin. And that's scary to think about from this perspective, because now I'm wondering if that's what was happening. And that really grosses me out. Ew. I have to go spray him down with bleach now. (laughs) I read about um, a couple of carpenters that were tearing up some linoleum and they, because it was flooded and moldy. And they ripped up this linoleum and they wound up in the hospital with what appeared to be burns on their skin. Like they had, and I'm going, well, that's a classic description of Stephen Johnson syndrome. And here you've got it from a microbial interface with something that had access to these modern chemicals in the linoleum, in the glues. So here we, we have an explanation for this. It's an autoimmune type response to the microbial emission. So that's the actual explanation with mast cell being connected to mold hypersensitivity, because this is something that we've discussed a lot as a group, as, is that we observe this mass, what people call mast cell activation, actually a symptom of mold hypersensitivity, and actually a symptom that can be helpful in discerning whether or not you have contamination around you because it's a reaction to something. Absolutely. And you can observe researchers to find out if they're puzzled by exposures, exposures, descriptions of this type from their patients. And yes, they are. The mast cell expert, uh, Teo Haredes, Teo Haredes, however you pronounce his Greek name, um, he's observed this precise thing. And he says that some of his mast cell activation disorder patients are so reactive to their moldy houses that they have to move and get rid of everything they own. <laughs> and he presented this at an MECFS conference. And of course, none of them responded. Keely Severson is passionate and committed to exposing the truth about toxic mold and its effects on the human body. Many mold injured people are often misdiagnosed with autoimmune conditions, nerve damage, mental illnesses, and other chronic health conditions due to the lack of knowledge about water damage and toxic mold growing in their homes. The crippling effects of toxic mold on the body has destroyed many lives. Been there, done that. 
When she became a healthcare provider specializing in acupuncture and herbal medicine, it was only then that she truly began to understand the connection between her health and the environment that she was living in. Three years after becoming a licensed care provider, she became incredibly ill. She was suffering from kidney failure, reoccurring UTIs, and various negative mental health symptoms. When she learned that her family had been dwelling with mold trapped under her kitchen floor, the relationship between the toxic mold factor and her health finally began to make sense. It became part of her life's mission to help educate society on the extreme effects that mold can have on the body. Her work is vital because there exists a lack of experience and acknowledgement for mainstream medical practitioners and even mold experts. She has firsthand experience dealing with mold exposure, and she makes sure to address all the signs and symptoms during every environmental screening that she performs. She's developed a line of organic herbal tinctures and formulas to help most patients reduce symptoms commonly associated with toxic mold exposures. These symptoms vary and can manifest themselves very differently from person to person. Her herbal education and experience has helped her increase awareness and recognize signs in patients that may result from their toxic environments. Keely's dedication to learning and understanding the effects of toxic mold and educating and bringing awareness to her patients and other providers keep her motivated. She knows just how devastating the untreated consequences can be on your health and the health of your families, relationships, and life outcomes. If you or someone you know may be affected by toxic mold exposure, rest assured that you and Keely will work together to find a solution. By working together to treat the symptoms and stay educated on toxic mold exposures, we can reduce the impact of this devastating phenomenon. To consult with Keely, please visit exposingmold.com slash consultations. That's exposingmold.com slash C-O-N. S-U-L-T-A-T-I-O-N-S. Book your appointment today. I mean, think of all the people (laughs) that could have this information that could totally help their state of health. I mean, Akili, you, um, I think we're following this hashtag MCAS on Instagram and it's constantly pictures of people in hospital rooms having a mass cell flare, can't walk, really sick, like burning. Like, I'm just like, imagine if people were just given the information that we provide, like how better of quality of life that they could have instead of- But how many people have you tried to tell and they just thought you were crazy? Yeah. Oh, girl. I see these That's things what I'm and saying. I like, off. I stopped even telling people at this point <laughs> that- know. Their mass cell, I mean, unless they're like a direct someone I'm working with directly because it's the backlash of what people want to say it is, is like, fine, I'm not going to argue with you. That's fine. That's true. It's having the information, but then having people be receptive of that information. And But speaking of other illnesses that are misdiagnosed from mold illness, I saw something similar on an MS page, I think last night, and it was talking about how she's not in a flare, it's just winter approaching. And so these changes in her mobility and MS symptoms worsening is normal for the weather change. And I thought, damn, how interesting is that? I mean, I've always associated MS with mold exposure, but that's just clinical observations from my patient base with acupuncture. That's not a research study or peer review anything. 
So to see someone specifically say that their MS flares with the weather change, that totally fits what we're saying with this hypersensitivity profile. So that's interesting. Well, if you have the idea that it's something that comes in on the wind, this allows you to set up a very simple experiment, move to a different location. If it's in the air and it gets on you, can you set aside water and wash it off you so that after this event, this pulse of whatever's in the air passes, can you decrease your symptoms by getting it off your body and out of your clothes? This is something the ancient Greeks could have done. Why wasn't it? They're probably all running from the burning skin infections, so they didn't have time to think about it. Well, if that famous reference to mold in Leviticus, they were aware that mold could get into their clothing and that they had to burn their clothing, wash off in the, the street. Oh, do you think that's why? Because it was causing these skin, these skin problems? Well, there's no direct description of mold causing leprosy, the, the sarat, the skin reactions. They didn't record that. They just said, get rid of the mold because it's a very troublesome thing. And there's two things here. They're talking about red or green mold, not black mold. And much of the Bible is devoted to preserving your clothing from contamination and wear. It has to be of a certain quality. You have to treat it in a certain way. And they were so concerned about preserving their clothing, which is very expensive to produce back in those days, very a precious thing that was very important to you, that I suspect that most of the remediation in the Bible was dedicated to preserving your clothing more so than your health. I had a really hard time with that one when you first told me that a long time ago. I don't know why, but it makes more sense to me now. Like that makes more sense to me because if the Bible was the, the word on mold, then people in the church or pastors would currently be the mold experts because it's like that would have carried down with the traditional knowledge. Whereas why is there so much toxic mold in churches and people don't even believe it can make them sick or it's not even a problem? Yeah, so they were familiar with certain aspects of what mold can do, but they weren't necessarily associating with black mold and the health effects that we're seeing today. But it's just amazing to me that some of the observations came so close to being translated into a simple test that anybody can do, but they didn't do it. Losers. Losers. Benjamin, <laughs> Benjamin Franklin, when uh, that famous incident where he wound up sharing a room with Samuel Adams. The frowsy air. The frowsy air, right, yeah. <laughs> Uncle Benny. And uh, Ben Franklin talked about my theory of colds, why people get colds, and how this is caused by frowsy air in enclosed rooms. And that right there, you can ask, well, is this all rooms or is it some rooms? And Franklin actually went so far as to suspect that it was something that was carried on the clothing. So you can wash the clothing, you can burn your clothing, you can move away from your clothing. There's so many things you can do to find out if this effect is associated with the room with clothing, and yet these simple things weren't done when anybody can do it. And I thought about this and I go, well, I can do that. I've got a desert nearby. I can abandon my clothing. I can make a break with my contaminated objects, go to this pristine environment and see if I can diminish this effect. Simple. And that's when I talked about going to these institutes and say, you could set up a shed in the desert 
and reproduce this. It's testable. You can do it. You can do it now. You can do it for cheap. But that doesn't sell many um, potions or drugs. People need their drugs, Eric. Come on. <laughs> and their potions. They need their pills and potions that are going to solve everything in their lives. <laughs> well, I hope you guys found some value in this conversation. As usual, I always learn something new from Eric and my mind is constantly blown. So hopefully you feel the same. Uh, thanks again. We'll see you guys next time. Bye.